You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word, Father. And as we've already prayed, Lord, we pray that you'd be pleased to instruct us this morning, that you'd be pleased to speak to our hearts, Father, from your word. And Oh, Lord, we pray for your glory that we would be recipients of your word and that, Father, our hearts would be continually aligned by its truthfulness. So, oh Lord, we look to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The things you might notice first about Psalm 3, and I think it's easy for us to notice because for probably many of us, unless you have a study Bible open, you can see Psalms 1 and 2. And if you look at... Um, Psalm 3, you'll notice it, start, it opens with a title, um, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And it's the first uh, psalm in the Psalter with a title. And I, I wasn't going to say much about it, but I think that I probably should uh, let you know that, you know, in, in recent scholarship, and when I say recent scholarship, scholarship um, over the last maybe 120, 140 years, has been pretty tough on some of these uh, titles, as some of you may be aware of. Um, uh, towards the very end of the 19th century, there were many scholars that said, you know, the titles practically have no validity whatsoever uh, to the psalm, and it was of their opinion that the titles were giving so late in the game, so many centuries after the composition of the psalm itself, that um, they're just willy-nilly. Um, it seems to to look back, it seems that they perhaps looked at them kind of like we would look at our subheading. You know, in the ESV, you have a subheading above Psalm 3 that says, Save me, oh my God. But if someone has an NIV open, that might be different. Um, you know, and, and we read our Bibles all the time, and we recognize that uh, those subheadings are just headings that the translator has put in order to assist us and aid us in reading uh, this, this psalm, but it's not something that's been written by the pen of the uh, Psalter himself. Uh, now, uh, I want to share that because there, were, there have been men who have had a um, otherwise very faithful, uh, and women for, for that matter, who have had a very faithful uh, doctrine of Scripture. They believe the Scripture to be the inspired Word of God. Uh, yeah, they disregarded the titles as subheadings. Uh, through the course of my talk this morning, uh, you know, I want to repeat the words of uh, 
James Montgomery Boyce, who said so many years ago, I take this, I take the title very seriously. <laughs> um, I'm going to take the title of this psalm very seriously. You know, uh, Wilhelm van Gameren, you know, he makes a, a comment that's really useful. He says, there's nothing in Psalm 3 that would destroy the historicity of this, uh, of this uh, comment. Um, I believe that the, the, the title is part of the psalm, and I think that we're going to be assisted greatly uh, by looking at the title and looking at the historical context that this psalm was written in. Notice it says a psalm of David. Now, I've made mention of the preposition of and other studies on a couple of occasions. You know, uh, Hebrew scholars tell us that the word of is, you know, it's a, it's a very, it has a very broad range. It could mean authorship, of course. It could, re- it could mean a psalm that's uh, concerning, a psalm that's about, or a psalm that's been given to. Uh, I think the most natural way to take most of this is that it's a, a psalm that's been written uh, by David. And uh, the New Testament, of, of course, uh, often makes references to the, the entire corporate psalms as psalms of David. And through the history of the church, uh, the church is often referred to the Psalter as the David. Um, I don't know if anybody is familiar with that, but uh, the David, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, from what I understand, uh, they often referred to it as the David, and they were referring to the Psalms. They didn't believe that every single Psalm was written by David, but so many of them are written by David that they could call it uh, the David, if you will. Now, the rest of the title there um, uh, of David when he fled from Absalom, uh, his son, that's what prompted me to read the story from Second uh, Samuel 15, where we find uh, David fleeing from his son Absalom. And, you know, in that story, some of us probably already were familiar with that story. You know, um, uh, I made a comment uh, uh, a few weeks ago in regards to David, you know, that David never jockeyed for power. He never jockeyed. He never positioned himself in a certain way so that he could be someday king. He, you know, he, he never did that. Uh, in fact, you remember we were, we, I don't remember what in, in, the, in the context of what psalm it was, but you remember we, we, we were talking about Samuel. You know, God, God is leading Samuel uh, to uh, the person that he is going to anoint as king, and he leads Samuel to Jesse, David's father, and Jesse brings his sons. He brings all these sons to Samuel, and Samuel begins to interview all the sons, and, and he says to Jesse, realizing that not one of these is, is the one that God is going to anoint as king, and, and um, Samuel says to Jesse, do you have another son? And, and what, does, what does Jesse say? Well, well, yeah, we have another son, but he's He's back at the farm. Um, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel says, go get him. We're not going to eat until uh, he arrives. And so the, the point in all of this is David never, David never jockeys for power. He never sets himself up uh, so that he could be king, if you will. Now, his son Absalom couldn't be more the opposite. You know, in the story that we read, we see Absalom, he's standing in the city gate, and he is doing everything he can, making every political mover, maneuver that he can possibly make in order to put himself in a position that he can raise a coup up against his father. 
There's nothing unique about this in antiquity. In fact, there's very little unique about this even in the world today. The United States enjoys something that I think we take for granted and maybe many of us never even bother to think about, but it's unique. It's quite unique, and it's called the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, I, 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 I imagine that probably the majority of Americans don't, uh, we don't even think about it. You know, okay, a president is president for four years. If he's reelected, he can be president for four more years. But then he's done. Then he steps down. And another president takes his place. Governors, I mean, uh, we grow up and this is the way it is and we don't think much about it. But this, this transfer of power in a peaceful way is something that is quite unique. Um, it's something that we enjoy. Um, many cultures and many nations don't enjoy that. Uh, transfer of power happens at the edge of a sword. And that's the painful thing I think we need to understand here of what David is going through. And it's, it's at the essence of his cry. You know, I, there's a couple layers to this. I, I, I think uh, one layer, let's keep in mind that Absalom is David's son. And Absalom... In order for him to be successful, it means that his father has to die. I mean, that's what this means. Now, David understands that Absalom understands that. Now, it's hard to get your mind around that, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to have a little family dysfunction. And it really puts our family dysfunction, I mean, for the most part, I don't mean to, 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 to diminish family dysfunction in any way. You all know me better than that. But maybe sometimes it'll help us when we think of our family dysfunction to take a look at this. Um, this is really severe, but there's another layer to this. David also realizes, and that's going to that's gonna be something we're going to need to understand if we're going to understand Psalm 3. David also understands there's a spiritual component to this. There's a spiritual component to what his son is doing. Because his son is not just rising up against David, his father. His son is also rising up against Yahweh, David's Lord, isn't he? And as parents, um, I don't have to remind you how painful that layer can be. Um, that's a very painful layer. Uh, when we have children that are not following the Lord. Uh, it's a very painful thing. So it's in this context here um, where David cries out in verse 1, O Lord. Notice capital letters. You've heard me say it many, many times. That means that Yahweh is being translated the covenant name of God. And it's important, you know, David begins with that, O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. You know, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read in, in 2 Samuel 15, which we read just a little while ago. In verse 12, the very, uh, the second sentence of verse 12, we're told that the conspiracy that Absalom was leading continued to grow strong and the people continued to increase who were with Absalom. And for every person that 
moved into Absalom's camp. That was another foe, another enemy, if you will, uh, that was against David. Now, this, this conspiracy has to be quite strong to be able to uh, lead a coup like this that would cause somebody of the magnitude of David to go fleeing out of there like he did. David was a warrior, and he wasn't just any, he just wasn't your garden variety warrior either. Uh, for him to go hightailing it out of that palace like that, uh, there were enemies everywhere. And try to imagine being in David's position. Who would you be able to trust? People you thought you could trust, proving to be people you can't trust. Imagine how scary and how frightful this would be. And it's out of this that David calls out to the Lord, you know, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And notice in verse 6, there's an arrow that flies in, or in verse 2, rather, I'm sorry, there's an arrow in verse 2 that is especially sharp and piercing. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. Could you imagine hearing that at this particular time? And of course, sin is not mentioned in Psalm 3, but sin very much is running as a background program in Psalm 3. What do I mean by that? If we're familiar with the ancient history, then we will understand that the context of Absalom's uprising against David is David's affair with Bathsheba, isn't it? And some of us say, well, what's that? I've never heard of that. Well, David has an affair with the wife of one of his, really, who, one of his soldiers who proves to be so faithful. He has an affair with her. She becomes pregnant. And, and in a way to try to cover it up, he, he orders uh, her husband, Uriah, out from the battlefield to come home, thinking he would return home, and the whole thing could be covered up. But Uriah is so faithful, Uriah refuses to return home while his countrymen are fighting. And David sees that it's not going to work, so he orders Uriah back out into the battlefield. He even gives Uriah the envelope, if you will. Uriah carries the message, actually, that's his death sentence. Um, he goes back out. He gives this message to the commanding officer. The message says, listen, take Uriah out into a place where it's really dangerous and leave him there. In essence, David murders Uriah to cover it up. Uh, so it's not a small... This is not a small thing at all. And, of course, uh, the Lord comes to David through Nathan the prophet, convicts David of his sin. David seeks forgiveness from God, and David receives forgiveness from God. But here's an important lesson that we, uh, we must learn from this. Is we can, it's, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be relieved of the consequences, isn't it? You know, forgiveness is one thing, and consequences are another. And... And the Lord makes it really clear that one of the consequences of David's act is that the sword is not going to depart from his house. Now, I bring that up because imagine, I can imagine in David's mind that there is this thought that's occurring over and over again. I'm the cause of this. You know, this is my fault. Um, think about how many people are going to die before this is over. Uh, there's a lot of bloodshed that takes place before this is over, um, including the bloodshed of Absalom. Absalom doesn't make it in this. Um, so to hear 
that there is no salvation for him and God would be especially strong. But I want to bring all this up to you because what we have here in Psalm 3 is an individual lament. That's the, that's the kind of psalm it is. And oftentimes when we are lamenting because we're in distress, oftentimes the distress is of our own making, isn't it? It can be. It can be distress that we bring upon ourselves because of some sin that's in our life. Um, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's very common, isn't it? Um, so let's hold on to that for a little bit. Um, at one point when David is fleeing from the palace, um, there's a story, and some of you will be familiar of uh, the story of Shimei. You know, Shimei sees David traveling with his entourage at one point, and Shimei approaches uh, David, and he starts throwing rocks at him, and he hurls a lot of insults at David, uh, saying, get out, get out, you man of blood. Uh, God is um, repaying you for the bloodshed of Saul is one of the things he says. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, but one of the things that, that Shimei says to David is he calls him a worthless man. And in the King James translation of that verse, we're told that uh, he is... Uh, a man of Belial. That is actually in the original. A man of Belial. Some will say, well, a man of Belial. What's a man of Belial? Well, the Apostle Paul uses uh, the word Belial in 2 Corinthians 6.15 when he says, what accord does Christ have with, excuse me, Belial? And, and you, can, you can gather from that, Belial, Christ, Belial. I mean, just from the context of that, who is Belial? Now, Belial uh, would be Satan, wouldn't he? And what is Shimei saying to David? He's calling him a man of Satan, if you will, a worthless man. The NIV uh, renders it scoundrel, you scoundrel. Uh, so imagine hearing these things, if you will, as you're fleeing the palace. We're told that David flees barefoot, dust and ashes, weeping, and those who are with him weeping. And that should say a lot in and of itself as well. A, a warrior of David's magnitude, weeping. Um, now, what does David do? Verses 1 and 2, David goes to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But then in verse 3, notice we, get a real, we, we find a really important word. And it's a word that oftentimes our minds just run right over and pay no attention to. Just a, uh, the word, but. You see that word there? But. But. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. It's like David goes to the Lord in prayer. And there he is entertaining all these, all his foes, all his enemies, all of these taunts that are being hurled at him. But then it's almost all at once he catches himself. He catches himself. And he says, now, wait a second, wait a second. Let's stop right here, right now. Lord, you are a shield about me. Now, where is that coming from? Well, at the surface, it's a, a shield. It's pretty easy for us to see the, the metaphor. What's the metaphor? Well, David being a warrior, he, he carried a shield. I mean, a shield's part of his 
part of his, I mean, that's, that's one of the major things that you take into battle during this time, isn't it? Um, you've got a shield. Many times David had taken a refuge behind his shield as the archers um, shot arrows at him, or he used the shield to deflect um, a sword, if you will. Over and over again he has used a shield. But here he is referring to the Lord as his shield. And one of the things that I want to point out here is that this is not coming out of a vacuum, and nor is David simply entertaining wishful thinking here. Why would David say what he says? Why would David stop all of a sudden and say, wait a second, gather yourself together here, Lord, or gather yourself together here, David. Lord, you are a shield about me. Why would David say that? Three things are important in understanding Scripture. Context, context, and context, isn't it? And if you just look at Psalm 2 and you go back to Psalm 2 there, and of course in Psalm 2 the question is being asked, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord's anointed? In this economy it would be the Davidic king, wouldn't it? The earthly Davidic king. Why do they do this? And in verse 5, um, God says, um, or verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs, he holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Look at verse 6. God says, as for me, I've, said, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, what is this a reference to? It's a reference to the Davidic covenant. Now, why is that important in Psalm 3? Because David is now, as David is hearing all this stuff, as he's, as, as he's got danger all around him, everywhere, he doesn't know who he can trust. It's really hard for us to even imagine the emotions that he's feeling, the stress that he's feeling, the anxiety that he's feeling, and on top of this, these taunts that there's now no longer any salvation for him and God. In other words, that God's done with him and he's just throwing him out. David says, wait a minute, Stop. He's telling his brain and he's telling his heart, stop. Let's get back to the promises that God has made. God has promised me. He made a promise to me. He made a promise to his anointed. He promised me that if I blew it, he would not depart, his, his love would not depart from me as it had with Saul. This is coming from 2 Samuel 7. He promised to build a house for me. He promised to build this Davidic dynasty, if you will. And it's in this promise, if you will, where David finally, he stops his mind from racing. He stops his heart from racing, if you will, because he embraces this promise and he realizes, wait a second, Lord, you will protect me. You will protect me. And it's in this sense that God is his shield. Does that make sense? And that's, that's what helps us make sense of the rest. Notice he says in verse 3, um, Psalm 3, verse 3, Oh, Lord, you are a shield about me. You're my glory. What does that mean? Well, think of the, the picture is a miserable picture, isn't it? Of David, you know, he crosses the Kidron. And he goes up the Mount of Olives, and he's, he's got his clothes torn. He's got dust and ashes on his head. He's weeping. He's barefoot. It's really a, it's, it's a humiliating posture, if you will. Um, and people are surmising, okay, God is done with him. But, but when God proves himself, 
or when, when David, when God delivers David, is what I'm trying to say, from this particular um, uh, trial, if you will, it's going to be very obvious that God was a shield about him. How else is David going to survive this unless God is with him? But when David comes out the victor, it's going to be really clear that God has not turned his back on, um, on David. And David's, it, it, we'll see that David's glory will be established as the Lord's anointed. Um, the, sec, the third phrase here, the lifter of my head. Um, you know, David leaves with his head down, doesn't he? He leaves in this posture of you, uh, humility, if you will, uh, in humiliation. Uh, but he, he will return and he will be seen as uh, the Lord's anointed. And in verse 4, notice the confidence that comes out of this. He says, I cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. There's a relationship here between the Lord's anointed and the temple that I think we need to see here. You read the history books and you'll get this relationship if you... Uh, read them carefully, you'll see there's a relationship between the Davidic king and the temple. I mean, it is Solomon who builds the temple, isn't it? And when a wicked king comes to the throne, what is the first thing that happens? You know, he corrupts the worship of the temple, doesn't he? But then when a good king returns in his place, what happens? They reform the worship of the temple. Um, and there's a relationship there. And notice that David says, I cry out to the Lord. And the Lord answered me from his holy hill. What is on God's holy hill? It's the temple. And what is significant about the temple, that's where the Lord's name dwells, isn't it? That's where God has caused his name to dwell. So here David, he goes from this despondency, if you will, this anxiety, this fear, this confusion, a whole mixture of things, terrible, terrible things, to where he stops himself and he gathers up the promises. He gathers up what he knows to be the will of God, and this fills him with confidence. And then he, um, he begins, he, he recognizes that this is his answer. This is the answer that he gets uh, from God. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see this wonderful repose. What does David say? I lay down and slept. Yes, yeah, like, <laughs> you lay down... You lay down and you slept. I lay down and I slept. How would you be able to sleep under these conditions? I, I mean, a lot less has kept us up at night, amen? Could you imagine being able to sleep under these conditions? He says, I lay down and slept. And I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, in verse 7, you hear this battle cry, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. You know, and it's, it's a contrast to what they're saying in verse 2. They're saying there's no salvation for him in God. In verse 7, David now has the confidence to say, Save me, O my God, uh, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now, what are those phrases? You strike all my enemies on the cheek. What, what, is, what is that about? It's about humiliation. You know, it's, a, it's an emblem of humiliation. Those who are trying to rise up against uh, uh, David are, are going to, in the end, be humiliated. And this idea of um, uh, breaking the teeth of the wicked is rendering them powerless. You know, you can imagine the fear. You know, you're walking down a sidewalk, and all of a sudden, you're about to be attacked by a, 
by a large dog, you know? It's ground at you, it's showing its teeth. Now, I'm just going to be playful here. Imagine this dog has dentures. And in the course of ground at you, its dentures go flying out on the sidewalk. Okay, now you've got Gumby, the barking dog. <laughs> what well, you're going to say, really? Well, as long as he's got those teeth in his mouth, that's a different story, isn't it? And it's an emblem. It's not meant to be playful the way I'm using it, but I, I did this in a way that I don't think it's going to be easy for you to forget next time you see it. You'll think I'm be the dog. Um, this is what um, David is praying for. He's praying for the, the wicked to be rendered powerless. Uh, oftentimes in my pastoral prayer, I, I pray this. Uh, and this is, these are some of the verses where this comes from. In verse 8, David says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You know, the amazing thing about verse 8, notice that last part, your blessing be on your people. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, the New Testament, you're called to love your enemies. Uh, in the Old Testament, you're called to slaughter them. You know, I mean, you'll hear people talk like that. I, I, they must not be aware of verse 8. Look what David is saying here. He's asking for a blessing It's beyond the people. What people? It's the people who are rising against him. Imagine doing that. Uh, <laughs> only by the grace of God would you be able to do that. Now, as we look at this psalm, I mean, how... How do we make application of this? I mean, how do we, you know, what do we do with this psalm? How would we, for example, pray through this psalm? And as we pray through this psalm, okay, how would we apply this to our lives? I mean, none of us are the Lord's anointed. We are not one of the Davidic kings. I mean, how do we pray for this? Well, one way that we can pray for this is here we see David is the Davidic king, is really leading us and showing us how to deal uh, with dire straits. He's showing us how to deal with um, problems when we've got troubles all around, isn't he? Um, he's trying to show us how uh, to deal with that. And um, as I put in my notes, I put here, Psalm 3 shows us how the faithful are to respond in times of trouble. And I think it's important for us to understand this. Um, a lot of times when we look at the faithful the biblically faithful, we think, oh, these folks were perfect. I can't, I can't, you know, I can't bring myself to pray like they did because I don't, I don't walk the way they did. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. I'm far from that. Wait a second here. David is faithful, and he is showing the faithful how to walk in faithfulness, but David was not perfect. It's important for us to grasp that. Um, as I'm looking around the room, I'm pretty confident that there's nobody in this room here this morning that thinks they're perfect. Am I safe in saying that? And uh, a lot of times our souls can be ultra-sensitive in that area. Uh, and I know that as I look around the room, I know there are a few that would fall into that category. And that's why I want to say, listen, Keep this title in check here. This is when David fled from Absalom. 
And this problem really is a problem that David has brought on himself because of his sin. David was faithful, but David was not perfect. And the point here is that salvation came to David. And salvation is all of grace. Now, someone may say, okay, well, this all sounds really, really good. I mean, okay, David's in lots of trouble, and this means I can take Psalm 3 when I'm in lots of trouble. And, and you know, David prayed. David went through the steps. He went through step A, B, C, and D. And if I go through step A, B, C, and D, then I'm going to come out like David did, right? And the answer is not necessarily no. Because we have to keep the covenantal nature of this psalm in check here. When David gathers himself together in verse 3, he gathers himself together as the Lord's anointed who has received a promise as the Lord's anointed. And see, this is where we could turn the psalm into something it's not. I'll give you an example to flesh this out. You know, a church bus is coming home from an event. It's in a terrible accident. Two young men are in critical condition. Their families are in the ER uh, while their, uh, their sons' are lives are hanging in the balance. Both are praying. Two surgeons come out, one with good news, the other one with bad news. Both are praying Psalm 3. Psalm 3 work in one case and not work in the other case. You, you can, can understand the scenario there, right? So we don't want to turn Psalm 3 into something that Psalm 3 isn't. Does that make sense? And someone say, well, then how do we use Psalm 3? Well, David calls and cries out for deliverance as the Lord's anointed, doesn't he? And David's life is spared. But David is a type, if you will, a type who points to Jesus, who also in his moment of distress, when he had enemies all around, everywhere, cried out, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if there's another way. I brought this up, I think, last week, didn't I? If there's another way, Lord, I'm all ears here. If there's another way, take this cup from me. It's on the night that Jesus is betrayed, you know, the night before he's crucified, realizing what he's have to do. Lord, if, if there's another way here, take this from me. Is Jesus' life spared? No. No. Jesus lays his life down, doesn't he? But on the third day, what happens? On the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. Our church bus is coming home. Two faithful young men who love the Lord are injured severely in an accident in that church bus. Two families are in the ER praying. Two surgeons come out. One surgeon says, your son's going to make it. He's got a little road ahead of him, but he's going to be fine. The other one comes out and says, oh, I'm sorry, your son didn't make it. What happens to the second son who didn't make it? He's in the presence of Christ. He's in the presence of Christ. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing beyond your people. His life is sustained, is it not? You know, I think one of the reasons why we get 
ill, we get sick, we get um, all these things that happens to us is because we so tightly hold on to this life, don't we? I mean, we so tightly hold on to this life. I mean, we just don't want to let go of this life. And we do this, you know, it's almost like a kind of a schizophrenic thing that we do because we know that, like, the great promises are really for the next life, but we don't want to let go of this one. And we constantly wrestle with the struggle of, you know, if we could just make this one a little more like heaven, everything would be wonderful, you know. If we could just keep shining this one up a little bit and hold on to it a little bit longer, keep fixing it up a little bit more. But listen, this life is not heaven. This is not the new heavens. This is not the new earth. And unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, there is only one way to enter into what's next, isn't there? And that's the doorway of death, isn't it? You know, death is indeed an enemy, and I'm not saying that we should look at it any other way. But if we're in Christ Jesus this morning, death is gained. You know, could we dare say that? It doesn't mean that we're, you know, we're not going to be afraid. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, doesn't mean that it's not going to be painful. It doesn't mean any of those things, but it is ultimately gain, isn't it? If we're in Christ. Now, someone will say, well, what about, what about the unbeliever? Listen, folks, there is no hope for the unbeliever. That's simple. That's something else we struggle with, isn't it? We want to think, oh, yeah, there's hope. There's hope for the unbeliever as, as long as he or she is walking this earth and has the opportunity to repent, there's hope. But we need to let people know there, apart from Christ Jesus, there simply is no hope. There just isn't. But for those who have turned to Christ and received Christ. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. <laughs> Do you suppose Jesus prayed during his earthly ministry? Do you suppose he prayed through Psalm 3? Do you suppose he sang Psalm 3? Do you suppose our master, and I'll close on this. Do you suppose our master saying salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. You suppose he did that? Of course he did. He sang those words, realizing that those words would come to fruition because he would accomplish the salvation for us. Amen? Heavenly Father, we so thank you and praise you, Lord, for the love we find in these words, Lord, and for the confidence, Lord. What a great antidote to anxiety. Well, Father, in unbelief, we're never going to find an antidote for anxiety. Drugs are no antidote for anxiety. Well, Father, but in you, we find, we, we find the remedy for anxiety. Oh, Lord, in you we find the remedy. We find the, we find the medicine, the medication for fear and anxiety as we see here, oh, Lord, in this psalm. And, Father, we do thank you for the truth here, Lord. Help us, oh, Father, to 
pray this psalm and to see this psalm fulfilled in Christ. And help us, O Lord, to make application of it in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.